Okay, we're back. And we're going to turn to the issue of privacy in a very public forum, the news media. In the 1980s, Amy Guida worked for a local TV station in Virginia. One day, the camera crew came back with some dramatic tape. A man had suffered a heart attack on the street. And this was in basically the town square. And our crew was there to record what the EMTs were doing to try to save the man. Sadly, he died. And the crew came back and wanted to air uh, the videotape of this attempted rescue. Uh, They really felt that people should see EMTs in action, that it would show a time when EMTs had worked their hardest to save someone. But Guida didn't think they should air it. This was a very private moment, not only for the man who eventually died, uh, but also for his family. And so I felt that it was very inappropriate. Guida won that argument. Her TV station did not air the footage of the attempted rescue. Now, if you're wondering what you would have done, that's just the point. Guida found herself on both sides of this issue throughout her journalism career. And she eventually left journalism and is now a legal historian who specializes in the law of privacy. She says that the rights of the press and the right to privacy have had a long and contentious relationship. And we're not just talking about when the press exposes the personal details about public figures and celebrities. Guida says it's been left to the courts to decide when individuals should be protected from the prying eyes of the press. The law looks routinely to questions of newsworthiness. Mm. And the newsworthiness question uh, is a balance between invasion of privacy uh, on the one hand and also news value on the other. So some sort of weighing of what the public would be interested in versus the privacy of the individual. And that's the way courts define newsworthiness. Guida says the courts have defined newsworthiness in different ways throughout American history. And 1890 turns out to be a pivotal moment. Two law partners named Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis penned a not-so-subtle paper in the Harvard Law Review entitled A Right to Privacy. And yes, we are talking about the future Supreme Court justice, Louis Brandeis. But Guida told me that it was his law partner, Warren, who had a real bone to pick with the press. He had married the daughter of the Secretary of State and a U.S. senator from Delaware. Uh, And so the press was very interested in her family uh, and in her marriage to Samuel Warren. And so the Law Review article is written in a way that is utterly anti-press. They suggest that with technology, uh, that what's going to happen is that people will whisper things in closets that will then be shouted from the rooftops. Each crop of unseemly gossip thus harvested becomes the seed of more. And it's fascinating that that sort of crucial legal paper from 1890 is born of a legal figure who felt that his privacy had been violated. You know, we're not talking about some ethereal concept. We're talking about something that even when it's being debated and defined is is coming from a place of, of feeling violated. That's right. And things start percolating in the courts more strongly. By 1930, then, you get a very interesting case involving some journalists who had reported that a woman who was of fine social standing in the community had actually once been a prostitute. And the court decided that, in fact, she did have a right to privacy uh, and that the journalist could have reported on her past life as a prostitute without naming her. 
But by Mm. naming her, they then crossed the line and invaded her privacy. Gaida says that when you look at cases throughout the 20th century, it appears that courts reflect public attitudes towards the press. As media organizations became more trusted in the era of Watergate and media ethics codes, courts more often sided with them. In the 1960s, 1970s, even into the 80s, courts trusted journalists to make the right call. One of those um, examples came after an assassination attempt on President Ford. The man who rescued President Ford was gay, and he rescued President Ford by by basically pushing away the would-be assassin. Gossip column reported that that man was gay. And so Mm. he sued for invasion of privacy. And the court decided that that information actually was newsworthy. And it was newsworthy for two reasons. The first was that President Ford had been against gay rights. And the second reason it was newsworthy, the court suggested, was that the greater public benefited from the revelation of this information because Hmm. people found out that gay men could be brave as well. Wow. And so it's that sort of news judgment that courts then credited news media with. Wow. Uh, Hmm. And so you get that very deferential sort of decision-making in the 70s and in the 80s and perhaps even into the early 90s uh, where courts just stepped back and said, listen, who are we? We didn't go to journalism school. We can't make those calls. We don't know what newsworthiness means. Only you journalists know. Something changed in the 90s. So what is that? I think what changes in the 90s is the internet uh, and the ability to publish instantly uh, without any questions about ethics or our second guessing or, or anything like that. There are a number of websites that proudly proclaim that they don't abide by ethics codes at all uh, mm. and who will publish truthful information, believing wholeheartedly uh, that the law will, in fact, protect them because it's truthful, including in publishers of revenge porn websites, for example. Mm. Those sorts of questions are what courts are grappling with right now. Does anyone who publishes truth get to decide what is newsworthy and what the public will be interested in? And what truth is private and questionable and what truth is, I guess, less private. <laughs> yes, I think that's right. So is the line between the right to privacy and the right for free speech? I mean, is that something that you'd say right now we're kind of really negotiating to a degree that it hasn't been before? Yes, I think that's right. And so just within the past year, there have been two uh, cases decided by courts, one deciding that a medical chart of an NFL player should be um, private, should have remained private, uh, and another one, a sonogram from a woman who was alleged to have had an abortion, that both of those um, things, even though they were published, uh, the court said, listen, those things are beyond the pale. We're, we're, um, we're going to find that the plaintiff in those cases uh, has the right to privacy in that information. Does it feel to you that in the 21st century, the courts are becoming more aggressive in protecting privacy? I do see that, yes. So uh, so I'm quite surprised at some of the decisions of late, uh, including uh, the one 
against uh, ESPN for publishing that medical chart. I don't think that that decision would have come down that way 20 years ago. I think that the whole conversation there is fascinating because probably many people, when they think of privacy, think of privacy as a good thing and everything else as bad, right? Or negative because they're thinking of their own privacy. But but I think the one of the important points that you've made here is that the other side of privacy is newsworthy and that that isn't something that you can totally attack as being negative. That's exactly right. Because on the other hand, there will be times in which medical information will in fact be newsworthy, especially as it regards, uh, for example, a politician uh, or something like that. So let's say you have a president in the United States who uh, has some sort of mental condition like Alzheimer's, for example. And if reports had existed in the 1980s that Ronald Reagan, for example, had Alzheimer's and the press had reported such a thing, that information would in fact be newsworthy. And the judgment call there, I think, should in fact be made by uh, a journalist understanding then how to weigh the individual's privacy versus uh, the real news value of that piece of information. Wow. That answer right there and your feeling that you can't draw that kind of a bright line assigning where privacy starts and stops really, I think, emphasizes something that everything you've said here suggests, and that is that privacy really is something that's negotiated constantly, right? Between people, between uh, people in the law, it's, it's something that is constantly in flux, it sounds like. That's exactly right. Amy Guida is a law professor at Tulane University and author of The First Amendment Bubble, How Privacy and Paparazzi Threaten a Free Press. 